This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today we're joined by Jan Johnson, a professional landscape designer, an award-winning instructor at the New York Botanical Garden, and author of the books Heaven is a Garden and The Spirit of Stone. As a speaker for Botanical Garden show audiences, Jan loves to share her insights on the beneficial effects of informed garden design, her unique approach incorporating ancient practices with contemporary ideas is entertaining, inspiring, and informative. Jan joins us today via Skype from her garden in New York. Welcome, Jan. Hello. Let's get started with your earliest influences and what brought you to this world of plants and garden and garden design and its history and application, Jan? Thank you. Well, I've been in the landscape design and horticulture professions for 45 years. But I started out growing up in apartments in New York City. So I didn't have much access to the natural world. In fact, what I did mostly was I grew tomatoes in uh, soup cans on the fire escape and have occasional forays to the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. But when I uh, got to uh, the college years, I thought I'd become an architect. Again, I didn't have much um, relationship with plants and trees. But I went to Japan and that changed everything for me. Describe, yeah, describe that experience, Jan. I went there as an intern in an architecture office in Osaka, and I lived in Kyoto. And so on the weekends, I would, of course, visit those legendary gardens, the Japanese gardens in Kyoto. And it was just life-transforming for me, because when I walked into those magical gardens, you know, along those mossy paths and the cedar-scented air, I just felt the stress drop right off of me. And it was this whole green oasis amidst, you know, a very bustling Japanese city. And I said, whatever this is, this is what I would like to do. I'd like to create outdoor spaces that made people feel the way I felt right then. Yeah. How old were you at that point? I was 19 years old. And from there, I went to the University of Hawaii and studied landscape architecture. Describe where you currently live and garden. Well, I came back home after many years away to New York, and I live north of New York City um, in the Hudson Valley, which is absolutely gorgeous. Mm -hmm. After working in offices and, and getting my master's in planning, I set up with my husband a landscape design and build firm here. We've been doing this for 30 years. Give us a visual tour of your home garden there. My garden. What I did here was I created like my little oasis, my little sanctuary, where I encircled it with plants and shrubs. And then I put in a dry stream. And it's and it's very uh, serene, as you can imagine. Mm. It's my little place to go to when I come home at the end of the day. Let's see. In the Hudson River Valley, you are probably zone... Well, they say zone six. But, you know, with our winters, you just never know. Mm -hmm. So I I always kind of veer on the side of caution. And so describe visually those, the, the trees and shrubs that sort of surround and create that embrace of your oasis. Oh, the native plant material here is absolutely beautiful. 
It's unusual where I live because we're at the northernmost range of the southern plants and the southernmost range of the northern plants. So, for example, we can actually grow birch trees, which are at home in more colder climates, but we can also grow red buds, which do much, mm. much better down south of us. So we have that wonderful conglomeration, plus the native maples, beeches, hickories, oaks. It, the eastern woodlands is alive and well around where I live. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Does that palette and that sense of, you know, dense deciduous forests and healthy understory and the shrubs that go with that, does that come into play in your design work, Jan? Absolutely, yes. It informs everything I do. It is the the woodland landscape, which is you know, it, it serves us well because I can take from the uh, European traditions easily because that's what they have. Mm-hmm. Whereas in California, you do Mediterranean so well. Here, it's more the English kind of landscape school or the Scandinavian. Yeah. So you have two books out that I mentioned in my introduction, the first being Heaven is a Garden, and the second being The Spirit of Stone, which was just published this year by St. Lynn's Press. What inspired you to write, to to not only build and design gardens and be in relationship with plants and the plants of your area, but to then write about gardens and gardening? Well, Jennifer, about 10 years ago, I woke up and I thought, you know, I'm not getting any younger and I have all this information that I've gathered and have put into practice over all these years. And I said, I've got to share this. Now, I did teach. I taught for seven years at Columbia University Landscape Design, but that's just small groups. And I thought, I really want to get this out. So every morning at 5 a.m., I would get up and write a little bit before going off to work. First of all, I, I just love the vision of you getting up every morning and, and starting to try and compile these topics that you're passionate about and that you want to share with other people. And it's really a building of, of information and knowledge, much like building a garden and, and oh. living in it. Yeah. The Heaven is a Garden um, the des- designing the serene outdoor spaces. Talk about your inspiration for that and and a little bit for listeners who might not be familiar with it about the structure of the book and the different threads of knowledge that you weave into this book. Well, it started off way back when I was in Japan because I loved the feeling so much and I assumed that when I went to study landscape architecture, I would learn about that. And they told me all about drainage and plant material and access ways. And I kept waiting for them to tell me how you create an outdoor space that makes you feel wonderful. Mm. And they never did. And so as I went on in, in, in my profession, creating outdoor spaces, I worked for large planning firms and then my own. I started to read up about ancient planning and gardening techniques, looking for what they did as a clue to what we might do in our outdoor spaces, in our backyards. And I found that there was a lot of information that I used in my designs that nobody really talks about. And so that's what I started to do. I started to synthesize all the things that I did into pointers for people 
that they could use in their backyard. May I give you an example? That would be great. So an easy one to describe is the lure of the sheltered corner. And this comes from our ancestors who always like to have their backs protected with the view out in front of them, a protective stance, of course. And we still do that. When we go to restaurants, we survey the restaurant and the place we want to sit normally is with our back protected with the view out to the restaurant. Mm. Same thing in our outdoor patios or, or little garden spots. If we place a bench, the best thing to do is to have the back protected, whether it's with a little slope or a tree or a bush or a hedge or a wall, something that gives us partial enclosure and protection. Mm. And it's true. If you think about it, that's the sweetest spot to sit in the backyard. Yeah. Yeah. And in the book, throughout the book, one of the things that I, I really enjoyed was this um, interplay between um, ancient writers and designers and thinkers, uh, and then these kinds of very pragmatic examples like you just shared with us. You, you go back to early American designers like Ellen Biddle Shipman. You yes. go back even further. You, you share ancient thinkers on these concepts. It's a pleasure to read it and have this kind of journey of of learning, and then to have these very practical uh, tips for, for gardeners as you go forward. There's clearly a spiritual aspect to, to this book, even in its title. Why was this important to be the first book? Well, this is the one that just kind of poured out of me, where I said, okay, I'm going to write about things that I think people would enjoy. And it, when it started to flow, it was like, okay, now I'm going to talk about water. Now I'm going to talk about trees. And I would just share some of the ideas that people could use in their in their gardens that way. And it's almost like a overall survey of the general landscape design approach. It seems to me just from this conversation even that it goes back to that almost undefinable moment in Japan where you go into a garden and you say, whatever this is, this is what I want to do. Yes. And it's, you know, they always talk about those little epiphanies. Mm -hmm. And I, I really did have one of those. And it was all it was all the senses were involved, you know, the smell and the touch and the feeling and I was sitting on a rock in Nanzenji, that's a specific garden. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, wow. Um, so it and that and of course, I do have that philosophical bent, as you mentioned, and I almost can't help myself, but I feel that um, the gardens that have a special feeling to them do flow out of the gardener's philosophical mindset. Mm -hmm. and, and that is the intangible. Yeah. If, if you approach it just like I want it to look good, well, it'll look good, but it may not have that certain feeling to it. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're speaking with Jan Johnson, a gardener, landscape designer, and author of the books Heaven is a Garden and the Spirit of Stone. Jan's emphasis on informed garden design that incorporates both ancient and contemporary values and aesthetics is apparent in her design work and in her books. We'll be back after a break to hear more. Stay with us.
This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with landscape designer Jan Johnson, author of Heaven is a Garden and the Spirit of Stone. Welcome back. That spirit of sort of the genius of place or genius yes. loci. And that is so hard to quantify in many cases, but boy, as gardeners, we know it when we see it. We know it when we finally reach it in our own gardens, and it is really the best drug ever, right? Oh, absolutely, and I believe it does also emanate from using local materials. Yeah, so that really gives us to the next book, the the most recent book, The Spirit of Stone. Talk about the, the kind of, you know, progress from the one book to the next book and how it became, because you talk about stone to some extent in the first book. How did you then come to the decision that this was actually a whole nother book all on its own? In the first book, I have a chapter called A Rock's Resonance, Mm -hmm. and I talk about stone. I talk about how different cultures use stone in their garden. And I kind of had to stop myself at some point because, as I said, Every chapter was a different aspect of a garden. And after Heaven is a Garden was published, my publisher came to me and he says, why don't you write a a whole book on stone? There's so much to talk about Mm -hmm. with natural stone in a garden. Discuss the structure of this book and how you went about covering what you thought were the essential elements of incorporating stone in the garden and, and what positive effect that that brings us as gardeners? Well, when you talk about stone in a garden, the first thing many people think of is stone work, such as stone walls and stone paths and stone patios. That's the first thing people conjure up in their mind, which is very, very uh, important, of course. Mm-hmm. However, I use stone in the garden, and, and many cultures do, in many other ways, I wanted to kind of open people's eyes to the many ways you can incorporate natural stone in your garden. For example, the first chapter is the spirit of stone, mm. same as the name. And that looks at the ancient traditions of just solitary stones, like standing stones, stone circles, just stone for stone's sake in an outdoor space. And you do a really nice job here of giving us a lot, a really wide range of ways that stone can play in a garden from the kind of cobble rills for for drainage around a house to stone fountains to stone benches to, as you say, the stone walls and then the paving. And you do... um, You give examples of different kinds of stone. You give examples of some of the ancient stone works that, you know, most people are familiar with, I would think, Stonehenge or Easter Island or – and then, you know, um, very traditional rock gardens that use alpine rocks and how to create microclimates. How do you go about as a designer selecting stone for a particular garden design? And one of the oh. things that I find difficult, especially when I visit other gardens, is either they have too little stone, so there isn't this sense of grounding or, or age or, um, you know, structure. But then if you have too much stone or too many different kinds, it gets very loud. 
it, it, visually. You're absolutely right. It's just like a painting almost. Um, when you work with, with rocks in the landscape, I actually give pointers on how to set stones in the landscape mm -hmm. that people can easily understand. Because first and foremost, say you're doing a, either a rock garden or just stones to be appreciated for their own sake, surrounded by uh, crushed stone or whatever. When you place the stone, first of all, you have to talk to the stone. Now, that's when people start rolling their eyes, but it's true. It it's is true, yeah. And I, I work with a stone, and the very first stone you place, like in your garden, if you're setting more than, say, three or four, the first one is always the most important, and you have to get that one right. If you don't get that one right, nothing else will fall into place. So you look at the stone, you, you kind of communicate quietly, silently, otherwise people will think you're crazy. And then you must set it into the earth so that it at least one third of it is in the earth, one third to one half. And that establishes, it grounds it and it makes it solid. I've seen people literally just throw rocks on the earth, literally throw them on the earth. And that was it. That mm -hmm. was it. And that's when you kind of get that feeling that you're describing where it's just kind of all over the place and it's not settled. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have gardened and used stone, native stone, from my own property in Colorado and then mm. again here wow. in California. And one of the concepts that it runs through both of your books is this idea of sustainability and the importance of it as we create our gardens. One of the things that I, I struggle with here, Jan, is the industry of stone supply and mm -hmm. and really raising people's awareness about considering what they're buying, considering where it came from, considering if it if it fits. Where we live, we have a lot of open grasslands and oak woodlands, and we have a, a very sort of brilliant volcanic legacy. And so we have a lot of areas that are kind of full of tumbled volcanic rock, granite outcroppings. And I worry that some of the sourcing of this stone that we see in our landscape yards is not being done carefully or considerately of the environments that it's coming from. And it, it feels a little bit like rape and pillage to, to me. And how do you vet the source of your stone so that it is being responsibly collected, so that it is not decimating environments that should be left alone. I mean, a quarry is one thing and it's there and it's, you know, often a historical site that is being used to collect or, or bring stone to people. Um, what, what are your thoughts on this and how do you handle this? I totally agree with what you're saying. It kind of is part and parcel of, of everything, the way we approach everything, mm -hmm. such as the emphasis now on using native plants to feed the wildlife, the insects, and the pollinators, and not to rape and pillage like you're saying. Of course, California especially has a lot of the rock landscapes. Here, where I live, we're so lucky because, as I tell everyone, here we're surrounded by rocks. People curse the rocks. They think of them as a liability. And I walk around and say, no, don't you understand? 
take the greatest liability and make it your greatest asset. Mm. Utilize the rocks. So in my part of the world, I'm a little bit luckier. We can use our native stones that, that is everywhere and inside the earth and everything. But I do tell people, try to use local. Don't buy anything that requires a lot, you know, long distance shipping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just ask. You know, if you're living in Colorado, don't use the river rock from Maryland. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. And or if you live in Florida, don't ship it down from Connecticut. I mean, and I know this for a fact that this is what's happening. Yeah. It makes no sense. People have to create a consciousness of where they're living and what is appropriate for the site. That goes for the rocks, the plants, everything. Yes, because even in our gardens, every single rock is its own little ecosystem. It it you know, it hosts lichens and mosses and little invertebrates underneath, and it creates a little microclimate of, of water collection for the plants that live around it. And it's one of the reasons we love these elements in our garden is they bring, even as inorganic elements, they bring life and and diversity and interest. But it just saddens me when I see moss rock being pulled off of otherwise undisturbed native landscapes in my part oh. of the world and knowing that they are dismantling a very important ecosystem niche in our, in our region. I think that kind of awareness for, for gardeners is, is really important. And may I add that in my part of the world, we have a lot of historic dry stone walls that run through the Mm -hmm. woods that the farmers created as property markers when they would plow. And it is against the law to dismantle those stone, historic stone walls. But people don't even know that. Right. And that's an awareness education thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that is true here in certainly in Northern California as well. All of our fields and woodlands are crisscrossed with tumbled rock walls from the clearing of fields. And they are also protected environments and illegal to dismantle. So I really want to end, Jan, with one of one of your concepts. And it's, it's not a new concept, but you articulate it so beautifully in Heaven is a Garden. And I think it's really connected to why the spirit of stone is a spirit. And that is this idea of every garden having what you term a power spot. Will oh, you yes. yeah, will you describe this for listeners and what you mean by it and how you encourage other gardeners and placemakers to nurture this in their garden? Well, I do in the first chapter, it's called The Power of Place, and I cite that famous quotation by Alexander Pope, consult the genius of the place in all. And as a student, I kind of wondered, genius of the place, what is he talking about? Mm-hmm. And as I would go to people's properties, large or small, could be very small, like my backyard, first thing I would do is walk around, and I would just feel it. And after a while, I understood that there was one place above all the other areas that was a little bit more powerful. And I would say, oh, here's the power spot. And and they would say, well, how come? How do you know this? People's ears always perk up when I talk about the power spot. And all it is is, is a little spot in your yard that feels a little different than other areas. 
It could be a high point like I talk about, and a high point being either 18 inches higher or four feet higher. It It doesn't matter if it's super high. Or it could be the very low point, or it could be at the corner of a wall. It's just a place that you say, oh, this feels nice. Mm. And from there, you can kind of read the landscape a little bit better. And there is no right answer. What is your power spot could be very different than what I deem the power spot. It's a very personal decision. There's no wrong answers. But it does... When you walk around with that kind of awareness, it does make you a little bit more in tune with your property. Yeah. When I read this in, in the, the first time in Heaven is a Garden, and then I definitely felt its resonance in the spirit of stone, the first thing that popped into my mind was a, a house and garden I lived in in Colorado, and we were on a ridge. And... As you drove up to the property, there was this moment where you you were along the driveway and there was this little dip and on both sides of the dip were big, tall, old ponderosas. And mm-hmm. it had like dappled shade in the summer, and but it was a little protected from snow in the winter. And this was definitely the power spot. Like there was power this sp- spirit and vibration in this spot that pulled me every time I went through. And it, it felt like I was going through an Ani gate or it was. Ugh. And the minute I read that, I'm like, that's what that was. That is what she's talking about right there. And that is um, exactly it. I'm so, And you were you're so tuned in. So you knew it right away. Well, and but I had never really like articulated that every garden has one and that importance of like almost like a water witch, you know, walking around with your kind of senses open and feeling where is it in this garden, wherever it may be. That's right. And it doesn't have to be as glorious as what you had because like in my little yard, it was just kind of like a little flat space. But I thought, oh, right here, this is where it feels very good. And I put a bench there. Mm hmm. And that, and then people sit there and they feel it in the back protected and looking out towards the house. You know, one time I was asked about the uh, power spot and they said, well, how can people determine what it is? And I suggested, well, maybe just take off your shoes and walk around and just feel it with your feet. <laughs> and so if, if I kind of encourage that to people to walk barefoot into their yard a little bit, of course, not hurting yourself and just... That way you can actually feel feel the land very carefully and very closely and become more at home with it. I just love that. I want to go home and walk barefoot right now, Jan. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for being a guest. Well, thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Jan Johnson is a professional landscape designer, an award-winning instructor at the New York Botanical Garden, and author of the books Heaven is a Garden and The Spirit of Stone, both available from St. Lynn's Press. For this week's audio archive or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit mynspr.org. For more information, including many photos, please visit jewelgarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Thank you for listening. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. 
I'm Jennifer Jewell.